Good morning. How many saw the movie of the story behind this song? A lot of you. If you haven't, I don't normally recommend movies, but I would recommend that you see this movie if you get a chance. It's um, powerful, very emotional. Well, this Sunday and next Sunday will be our final time with you um, until we get to heaven, and then we'll put up with you for eternity. <laughs> I just wanted to go over one, in, I think, important part, because I'm telling you my story, but I'm only using my story to help you understand your story, and ultimately that we understand his story. So this is just a platform, not for, so that you know more about me, but that we understand more about God, and that you understand more about what you may be going through that's similar to what we're going through. This morning, these were the best of times. These were the worst of times. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be the teacher and that you would help filter out all the confusion and the clutter and things that confuse and do not help the process of understanding our lives, our journey, and understanding you and how you can apply your Holy Spirit, how you do apply your Holy Spirit to the circumstances that we find ourselves going through. In Jesus' name, amen. What is success? Synonyms of success are achievement, accomplishment, victory, and triumph. The antonym to success is failure. During the last three years of his life, people saw Jesus as incredibly successful. Even non-believers were impressed with his teaching, his charisma, his miracles, his devoted disciples, and masses of followers. So it came as no surprise when he arrived in Jerusalem that the people met in mass to greet him. They were ready to crown him king. He was received like a rock star or a professional athlete, um, like the Eagles. They were a bit perplexed when he rode into town on a little colt. Where was the large white stallion? Today we'd be looking for a limo instead of a VW bug. But nevertheless, they treated him like a successful conquering hero. After all, wasn't he going to overthrow Rome? Wasn't he going to establish a new order? Wasn't he going to be the new big man on campus? One week later, they crucified him on a cross as a failure. Success to perceive failure in one week. What happened that week that turned the people against him? First, he challenged the status quo. He challenged the system. One of the first things he did was drive the merchants from their stalls in the temple. He said in Luke 20, 46, my temple will be a place of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. 
For years the temple had been corrupt and he dared to hold them accountable for that. He challenged that this is the way that we've always done it mentality. Later, Jesus' letter to the church in Laodicea addresses some of this in Revelation 3.15. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot or cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, have everything I want, I don't need a thing, and you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind and naked. Secondly, he told the Jewish leaders, he held the Jewish leaders accountable for malpractice. Luke 20, when the teachers of religious law and the leading priests heard this story, they wanted to arrest Jesus immediately because they realized that he was um, pointing at them. Uh, Then with the crowds listening, He turned to the disciples and said, Beware of these teachers of religious law, for they love to parade in flowing robes and to have everyone bow down to them as they walk in the marketplace. And how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and at banquets, but they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property. And then to cover up the kind of people that they really are, they make long prayers in public. Because of this, their punishment will be even greater. And later Jesus wrote to the church in Sardis, I know all the things that you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but the truth of the matter is you're dead. Thirdly, he made the Roman government nervous. Even though Pilate, the Roman governor, said in Luke 23, I find nothing wrong with this man, Pilate and the other Roman officials were more interested in keeping the peace than insisting on justice. They were more interested in pleasing pleasing people than administering justice. Luke 23, then Pilate called together the leading priest and the other religious leaders along with the people, and he announced his verdict. You brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. I have examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence and find him innocent. And Herod came to the same conclusions and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. So I will have him flogged, and then I will release him. And then a mighty roar rose from the crowd. With one voice they shouted, kill him and release Barabbas to us. And as you know, Barabbas was in prison for taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government, and he was in for murder. Pilate argued with them because he wanted to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he demanded, why? What crime has he committed? I found no reason to sentence him to death. So I will have him flogged, and then I will release him. But the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die, as they demanded. As they had requested, he released Barabbas, the man in prison for insurrection and murder. 
but he turned Jesus over to do as they wished. <clears throat> For success, from success to perceived failure, one week. Jesus upset comfort zones. Jesus didn't meet expectations, so they killed him. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. In 1993, that's ancient time for most of you. For some of us, it was, we were much younger. That was supposed to be a funny one, but <laughs> obvious it doesn't work. <clears throat> In 1993, we sensed that God was calling us to pastor the Evangelical Free Church of Clear Lake, Iowa. At the time, we were enjoying ministry at Elam Mission Church in Kokato, Minnesota. I was especially enjoying a discipleship ministry with the young men. While at Elam, our girls graduated from high school and Heidi was married. I took two evangelistic trips to Romania, the last one with our men's discipleship group. When we came to Elam, the church needed some healing. We had a five-year plan to give direction to this church. After six years, our goals were accomplished, and we sensed that God was calling us to open the door for us to do the same kind of ministry on a bigger scale in Iowa. The situation in Iowa was like this. They had just forced their last pastor out of the pulpit. They had been a church of around 700 and we're now down to around 400. They had a huge building and a dysfunctional Christian school. Basically, they were headed in the wrong direction. We thought they had been brought to their knees and were ready to turn things around, so we gladly accepted their call in the spring of 1993. It was the best of times. We got on our Colt, actually a Dodge Grand Caravan, and rode into town, Luke 19. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. One of the first things that we did in Clear Lake was to get the men involved in Promise Keepers. We took a group of our men to the first outdoor PK conference in Boulder, Colorado with 50,000 men in the summer of 1993. The following year, 1994, we took 250 men from North Iowa to Boulder for Promise Keepers. God was doing a great thing. The men in our church and community were really growing and getting excited about their roles as men, fathers, husbands, and members of the church and community. Because of the impact PK had in our area, we started North Iowa Men of Integrity. I became an ambassador for PK and traveled around the state of Iowa and southern Minnesota speaking at conferences and training groups of men. We brought speakers in from around the United States for special weekend rallies. These were great days. I was later invited to be a consultant with PK in the area of racial and denominational reconciliation. I was privileged to make trips to the PK office in Denver to meet with other consultants from around the US. This was such an incredible pri privilege, great days. 
I was later asked by my good friend Raleigh Washington, who was the vice president of PK, to interview with PK for a full-time position in the Denver Reconciliation Office. Sherry and I were ready for a potential move to Colorado. Meanwhile, back at home, God was doing some great things. We sensed God leading us to spend time in prayer and fasting. After a trip to Los Angeles for a prayer and fasting conference, we came home and called for a 40-day period of fasting and prayer like we did here earlier this year. God was breaking hearts and releasing bondage and setting us free to be the church, the people that he would be pleased with. God began to stir our hearts in the area of unity in the body of Christ. It was amazing what God was doing in our midst. Revelation 7, after this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a mighty shout, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And John had the privilege of, getting, of seeing the small glimpse of heaven. What he saw were people from every nation, tribe and people and language worshiping God. Our experience was something like that. Imagine standing in the midst of 50 to 60,000 men from different denominations and ethnicities worshiping God. We thought we had died and gotten to heaven. In all my years of ministry, I had never seen or experienced anything like this before. I was like the blind man in Mark chapter 8. When they arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus and they begged him to touch him and heal him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village and then spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, can you see anything now? The man looked around and yes, he said, I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. And then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes and his eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored and he could see everything clearly. But then, as often, often did happen, along came the religious leaders, the cynics, the hypocrites, what I like to call the pretenders. John 9, they asked the healed blind man, who healed you? What happened? He told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed and now I can see and this interrogation continued until the former blind man said, I don't know, and this is one of my favorite passages of scripture, I don't know whether he is a sinner, but I know this, I was blind, and now I can see. In many ways, before Promise Keepers, I was blind to what God was up to with people from that were different than me. When I'm standing in the middle of 50,000 men holding the hand of an African-American man from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and both of us have tears coming down our faces as we're worshiping God, you tell me if that isn't what heaven is going to be like. I was blind, but now I could see. So we decided to do something about this in our local church. 
There were two groups of people we needed to reconcile with. One group was down the road from us, Agape Christian Church, a charismatic church. The other was an African-American church with our brothers and sisters. In October of 1995, we put together a reconciliation weekend. We invited Raleigh Washington, the pastor of Rock of Our Salvation Free Church in Chicago, and white associate Glenn K. Ryan, who was the director of Circle Urban Ministries, who partnered with The Rock to provide medical, legal, and social aid to the people of Austin suburb of Chicago to bring some of their choir to Clear Lake, Iowa. On Saturday night, we had a PK rally in Mason City featuring Raleigh and Glenn. Saturday night, we had a North Iowa men's breakfast and a ladies' luncheon with our friends from Chicago. And on Sunday morning, we partnered with Agape Charismatic and The Rock Black and put on a combined choir concert at the local junior high school. At the end of the concert, three pastors of different theological persuasion and color embraced one another in a spirit of unity. That week was our Palm Sunday in Clear Lake. The best of times, the best of times were about to become the worst of times. I would soon find out that I had, that we had, challenged the status quo, held the leaders accountable for malpractice, and made the leadership nervous. But there was one more best of time to come before everything broke loose. The following winter, 1996, all three of our pastors attended the PK Clergy Conference in Atlanta, Georgia. Remember the story of the blind man we just read. At first, all he could see was people walking around, and they looked like trees. He was regaining his sight, but the focus had not returned. Then Jesus placed his hands over the man's eyes again, and as the man stared intently, his sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. I tell you, uh, my personal testimony is that God healed my eyes in the midst of 40,000 pastors. For the first time I could see clearly, I would never be the same again. There would be no turning back. If it meant going to the cross, so be it. You need to understand that our church was in the middle of a second 40-day fasting and prayer. We were seeking the face of God for our church, our community, ourselves. And when we returned from that conference in Georgia, we testified to that what God had done in our lives and in the lives of the largest gathering of evangelical clergy in history. The setting was our regular Sunday morning service. After we finished sharing what God had done, individuals in the congregation spontaneously began to stand up and confess sins against each other in the church, against their family and spouses and children and all matter of other things. And when they finished asking for forgiveness, they came to the front of the church and the elders put their hands on them and prayed for them. This went on well into the afternoon. I never got to preach the following Sunday because it didn't stop. People continued to confess their sins publicly to the church family. And we had a, a small sampling of that here at Grace Chapel when after our 40 days of fasting and prayer when we had our sacred assembly. 
Finally, on the third Sunday, I did speak, but not before even more rose to confess sins and seek forgiveness and reconciliation. We were having a genuine revival in our church, and this wasn't a scheduled revival. This was the spontaneous moving of the Spirit of God on our congregation. But we were about to discover that this was the end of the best of times. This all took place in February. The following October, eight months later, I was asked to resign from the church. The best of the times became the absolute worst of times. I want to clearly understood that I did, and I don't equate myself with Jesus by any stretch of the imagination. I don't want to be struck flat out dead this morning. But I do have a better idea of what it means to have people who were just a week ago cheering for you and proclaiming you as their hero, now turning their back on you and seeking your crucifixion. We found out how fast this can take place. What happened? Well, the church in Clear Lake didn't know who they were, and they didn't know where they were going. They were a lot like the crowd in Jerusalem. They had already fired their former pastor, and now they were about to do the same with me. Instead of examining their own culpability, they chose to take the easy way out and get rid of the pastor. Back to the story of the blind man, John 9. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, Who is he, sir? Because I'd like to. Well, you have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, the man said, I believe, and he worshiped Jesus. Then Jesus told him, I have come to judge the world. I have come to give sight to the blind and to show those who think they see that they are blind. The Pharisees who were standing there heard him and asked, Are you saying that we are blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied. But you remain guilty because you claim you can see. He challenged the status quo. He held the leaders accountable for malpractice. He made the leadership nervous. Had Jesus done anything worthy of his punishment? Of course not. He was a perfectly innocent son of God who had come to be the lover and savior of the world. Had I done anything worthy of my punishment? Well, that depends on your perspective. But like the leaders in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, the elders took matters into their own hands. They felt that if they got rid of the messenger, they would get rid of the message. Luke 19, but when some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that, he replied, if they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. Let me conclude with a story. A friend of mine, um, Dr. Joseph San, was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Aradia, Romania. In the middle of Ceausescu's, Nicolae Ceausescu's horrible dictatorship, Joseph was hauled before the authorities and he was told to stop preaching about God. They said, if you don't stop preaching about God, 
we will kill you. And they meant it. Joseph calmly said, go ahead. If you kill me, I will become a martyr, and you'll never stop the message then. And if you don't kill me, I'll keep on preaching about God. He said, it was win-win for me and lose-lose for you. That would be enough to kill him. So the Securitati exiled him, and Joseph went to Europe and eventually the United States and translated theological books into Romanian. And with the assistance of Brother Andrew, some of you may have heard of Brother Andrew, smuggled them back into Romania. It was win-win for Jesus and lose-lose for those seeking to kill him. It was also win-win for Sherry and me, even in the midst of worst times, the worst of times. God was preparing us for 14 years of ministry in Becker, Minnesota, two years of being missionaries in Haiti, and interim pastor ministries in New York, Wisconsin, and Havertown, Pennsylvania. What are the lessons that we can learn from this? I think one of the key lessons that we can learn is that God causes the good times and what we perceive to be bad times to ultimately work together for our good and even more importantly, his good. Three passages of scripture that I want to leave with you that will emphasize this lesson that we can learn. And first is in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph is speaking to his brothers. And he told them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Romans chapter 8 and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, nor even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And finally, Jeremiah 29, 11, which is my, one of my favorite verses. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. As I stated in the beginning, this is my story, but in some way, it's many of your stories. You're here today, and you have traveled the road from the best of times, and right now you're in the pit of the worst of times. What I want you to see through this is and understand his story and how he can take you through the best of times 
but can also deliver you from the worst of times. It doesn't seem like it when you're going through it, and I'll address that next week, because when you're going through it, it seems like it's lose, 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 and there's tons of this, and lots more, and you don't think that God could ever have a purpose in the pit that you find yourself in. Write down these verses that we put on the screen. Genesis 50, 20, Romans 8, 28, 38 to 39, and Jeremiah 29, 11, and one that we'll look at and close with next week is Psalm 77, 19. Here's a path that no one knew was there. And I want to suggest to you and encourage you, if you're in that pit and it's the worst of times, that God has a path that right now you don't know where it's at, but he does. So next week's message is called, Here, I, Here Am I? And the rest of that is, Until My Calling is Fulfilled. Every one of us here this morning, not just the guy in the front preaching, but every one of us has a calling. And the key to our calling is to say to God in the midst of whatever situation we find ourselves is, here am I, until my calling is fulfilled. You know when your calling's fulfilled? When you're no longer alive. Until then, God has a calling on each and every one of our lives. And part of that path for Sherry and I is Grace Chapel. A path that, believe me, we didn't know was there. <laughs> Father, I pray that you will help every one of us understand and appreciate the fact that even though we're going through, might be going through the worst of times, it's not the end of the journey. You have plans and you have prepared for us a path. And we need to be encouraged by that. You're not giving up on us. You haven't turned your back on us. It's not a wholesale loss. There's, uh, there is a, uh, you came to prepare a future for us. You came to use this. This is an all a development stage. Encourage each one here this morning, particularly those who are experiencing the worst of times. May they understand your involvement in their life. And I pray for encouragement for them this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.